Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Most of us can name at least one pollinator. The most common ones all happen to start with the letter B. Butterflies, bats, birds, and bees. In recent years, scientists have raised concerns that these pollinators are in decline for a host of reasons that include climate change and disease. One pollinator you may not see in the summer as often as you did when you were a kid is the monarch butterfly. You can join the conversation. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Patrick Scahill, WMPR science reporter and blogger at thebeaker.org, joins us now in studio to talk about new research into monarch migration and some reasons why this particular butterfly may be in decline. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Lucy. Also in studio with us is David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. Thanks for coming on today, David. It's great to be here. So, Patrick, well, we know you've been looking into this research on yep. monarch butterflies. Um, before we talk about these uh, potential causes behind a decline, in their populations in North America. Can we first talk about their life cycle um, as they migrate from Mexico to the Northeast? Yeah, well, I would love to because it is really just this incredible, um, really multi-generational journey that has taken over thousands of miles from Mexico uh, up to the Northeast and Canada to places like Connecticut, um, and then all the way back down to Mexico again. So we could really pick up the story anywhere, I suppose, um, but it might make the most sense to uh, pick it up uh, when they are overwintering in Mexico. And uh, we can think of this as uh, maybe starting out in January and kind of picture 12 uh, mountaintops uh, down in Mexico where every year uh, the monarchs come and congregate uh, on fir trees there. And um, I actually spoke with Anurag Agarwal, who's a professor over at Cornell University. He's been there. He's walked into the forest, and he actually described what it was like to hike into those mountains. The air is thin. You're at 10,000 feet of elevation. And so you're a little bit huffing and puffing, and you're kind of climbing up. And you, you enter the forest, and it's quite quiet in the forest, as you might imagine. The trees are there, and, the, um, and then you notice them. There are trees that are literally weighed down. Their branches are weighed down by butterflies. There are upwards of 5,000 butterflies on a single tree. So it's really just this in, incredible kind of magical thing that, that he describes. Um, so what happens from there is in early spring, uh, these butterflies mate, and they take flight. They go north. Uh, they come into the southern U.S., places like uh, Texas, Oklahoma, and the Gulf states. When they're there, uh, this first generation uh, lays eggs, dies off. Um, those eggs are often laid on milkweed plants, and we'll talk a, a little bit more about – well, actually, they're, they're always laid on milkweed plants, and we'll talk more about uh, that a little bit later. From there, uh, those uh, eggs hatch. They become caterpillars. Uh, they feed on the milkweed. They grow up. They migrate further north. Uh, eventually, they arrive in places like Connecticut, and then when they're here in Connecticut – uh, about two or three more generations will um, grow up, uh, mature, breed. And then um, in late August, uh, the generation that hatches then uh, won't sexually mature, um, and they'll actually prepare themselves to do this really just kind of incredible thing where uh, this insect that, you know, and Dave can talk more about this probably, that an insect that weighs, I think, less than a paperclip basically fly, flies up to 3,000 miles all the way back down to Mexico again. So it really is just this incredible round-trip journey that they take. It is interesting, and 
what are we hearing from scientists about what's happened in the last 20 years of the migratory populations and how there has been a decline? What have been some, what are the causes sure. that scientists are saying? So um, the biggest thing, and the one thing that all scientists, I think uh, it's fair to say, agree upon is that population numbers in Mexico, the overwintering populations that we talked about, uh, those numbers have been going down. Um, and fairly substantially. Insect populations fluctuate a lot, and we can talk about that later, um, but these numbers have been going down. This is something that everyone agrees upon. Uh, what everyone doesn't exactly agree upon is what the primary driver of that decline is. I think it would be fair to say in the last five years or so uh, in scientific literature and particular, particularly in uh, popular literature and popular press, uh, the hypothesis has been that it's milkweed um, that's driving this decline. Uh, milkweed uh, is a plant that has uh, had a little trouble uh, taking hold in the U.S. It's not doing so well uh, as farmers uh, use herbicide-resistant crops. Uh, they're sort of killing off milkweed populations. And the idea is that, well, hey, look, if this is the only plant that caterpillars can feed on and there's less of it, that might be the thing that's driving uh, population declines. David Wagner, I saw you nodding your head when Patrick mentioned how insect populations um, fluctuate. So um, as a scientist, as an entomologist, uh, tell us what your, um, I guess, what theory you believe is behind the, the, the decline in the monarch butterfly. Well, insect populations, like you say, boom and bust. That They're noted for that. And gypsy moths are booming, actually, yep. uh, this spring. So some people are going to lose some oaks in, in their yards. But the monarch, in particular, has a highly fluctuating life cycle. I think that uh, a tenfold increase from or decrease from year to year is not uncommon in this species. And so amidst all this variation, we have to look at the patterns of why this thing's declining. It is declining maybe a 75% decline over the, uh, the last uh, decade or two. And so there's many factors. It could be that these crops that are genetically modified. So basically what we're trying to do or uh, many farmers are doing now are putting herbicide-resistant genes in our corn, herbicide-resistant genes in our soybean. And what that allows these farmers to do is plant massive areas of landscape in soybean or in corn and then come through with herbicide and blast everything in the vicinity. And then that kills all plants or at least all the milkweed and all the wildflowers, goldenrod and what have you, that were growing around those fields. Really important for biodiversity. Um, so you basically have got this landscape of just soybean, just corn, no nectar, and no milkweed for the caterpillars. Uh, so that that is something that we need to think about. But there's so many other hypotheses that have to be examined. Patrick brought up probably the most important one, I think, and that's that uh, they're having trouble in Mexico in these overwintering clusters. And it could be tiny, tiny little climatic fluctuations. Basically, they're going to Mexico to find a large biological refrigerator. They need to find a refrigerator where they can live from October all the way till April when they can find new fresh milkweeds. Milkweeds grow up from the ground every spring. There are no milkweeds that you know, survive really through the winter time. So they need this new growth. And in order to do that, they sort of go in a state of arrested development in this large biological refrigerator, these mountaintops in Mexico. But you can imagine that tiny fluctuations in climate are going to drive success or drive failure. And so that is really a global concern. And climate change then uh, becomes uh, a key suspect in this case. Um, I actually think that drought 
in the springtime. So Texas and northern Mexico have been experiencing a 100-year drought. And I actually think it's that drought, which means fewer milkweeds, when they're coming out of that migration, trying to get to Connecticut, trying to get into Canada, where there's uh, less water stress, has been absolutely pivotal in this loss. But there's diseases and any other number of factors that we have to consider. And Patrick, the scientists at Cornell had also talked about drought being a factor um, that impacts the migratory population as they're coming from New England down to Mexico. Right. Uh, so as Dave was saying, um, and as Anurag Agarwal at Cornell uh, told me, we could, I mean, we can make a very, very long scroll list of, of all the possible causes. And, and that's, you know, both what makes it um, hard to study, but also fun to study. So uh, there are issues at the overwintering sites in Mexico. There's, um, there's illegal logging that's happening at some of those sites. Uh, there's mining that's happening there. Uh, there, are, there was a drought in Texas that made it very, very difficult for populations that were migrating north. Uh, there are snowstorms that have happened that have wiped out huge, huge percentages of the populations. There's, uh, there's pesticides, uh, which we talked about. Uh, parasites can be an issue. Predators can be an issue. Uh, man-made structures can be an issue that confuse the butterflies as they're flying around. So uh, the idea that milkweed is the primary driver of monarch declines uh, has taken hold, again, uh, in, in the popular consciousness. But Anurag Agarwal was thinking, well, hey, maybe, you know, it's more complex than that. Um, so that's what he set out to study. He did. He looked at basically 22 years of population data. Uh, these were butterfly counts that were done um, all along the uh, monarch's north to south migration. Um, and uh, he basically tried to put the pieces together, as he says. And what he actually found out was um, that monarch butterflies were... So everyone agrees, again, this is complicated, so bear with me. Everyone agrees, again, the numbers in Mexico are down. They're, they're, they're not doing so well there. Um, but as the butterfly moved north, he was actually finding that their population numbers were building up again. Basically, the population loss was getting attenuated. Um, uh, and as they flew south, <laughs> again, bear with me, they rebuilt up. Their, their population numbers went down again. So does that make sense? Am I explaining this correctly? So the, <laughs> when they're moving north, the caterpillars are still finding a food source, right? Exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and as they're flying south, the numbers are going down again. And what that would Im imply is that, well, maybe it's not milkweed because these are adult caterpillars. They don't need milkweed at that stage. What they need is flowering plants that have nectar. They need water. Um, and maybe that's not available. So maybe it's an issue with there not being enough nectar, or maybe it's one of the other 15 issues that I <laughs> listed at the start. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about pollination, especially the specific monarch butterfly and, and questions and concern about the population declining over a 20-year period. Uh, in studio with me is Patrick Scahill, WNPR science reporter, and David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. I wanted to talk more about that point um, as they're um, going from north to south, and you had mentioned the herbicide-resistant uh, crops. So instead of the attention being put on growing as much milkweed as possible. Are there other plants that people should be putting um, the planting and, and providing that nectar for these butterflies? Well, there's a lot of interest in butterfly gardening these days and uh, planting nectar plants. People love to have flowers that are blooming in the fall. And so uh, it's not only good for the monarch, it's actually good for other pollinators as well. So I think that uh, people planting butterfly and bee gardens is uh, a, a growing part of the gardening in uh, industry. And uh, I would say that I see probably maybe an order of magnitude more butterfly gardens in this decade than I had two decades ago when I first came to this area. 
And Patrick, you um, had a, a lengthy interview with this scientist from Cornell. Right. What else did he tell you that was interesting about this uh, milkweed limitation hypothesis? Did I get that right? You, you did, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the, the scientific way of saying that uh, so, sort of as goes the milkweed, so goes the monarch. Um, and I think, I mean, one thing that uh, Anurag Agarwal from Cornell did mention over and over again is that a, he knows his study is stirring the pot a little bit. And, and actually, let's just hear him hear him saying that first. Perhaps we, we've stirred the pot a little bit. There was a kind of a simple uh, message out there, plant milkweed, and we may be able to help the monarch. And to those folks, I say, yes, of course we need to plant milkweed. It's not going to cause any harm, especially if we plant native species of milkweed. But I'd also say that our I hope our research indicates to folks that that's not going to be the end of the story. And we shouldn't expect populations to rebound based on that planting of milkweed. And I think that's an important message. If you're planting milkweed, that's good. It's it's going. It's not going to cause any harm, as Anurag said. But um, maybe the scientific community and maybe the public should be a bit more open to other hypotheses for reasons that could be driving the decline. Because it's it might not be a single issue thing. This emphasis on on providing more milkweed. Uh, David, when did that start where we're hearing from the president down that this is important to uh, maintain the population of monarch butterflies, you know, plant as much milkweed as possible? When was that warning call given out? Well, I think it's something Lincoln Brower has been worried about for quite a bit of time. He's seeing the conversion of sort of the small farms in the Midwest to this mega agricultural farm where the hedgerows and uh, the, all the wildlife that was along ditches and along roads and all the wildflowers was starting to dis- disappear. The the average planting of soybean or corn was v- now visible from space. And so it, it's been a building concern. Obviously, uh, millions and millions of stems of milkweed had, had disappeared. But this really became a focus in a petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to list the monarch butterfly as a threatened species. And uh, the need for more milkweed and for other people uh, to get involved, to have some incentives for farmers to uh, farm more sustainably was a big part of that petition. Patrick, tell me a little bit more about your reporting uh, with the Cornell scientists. I know you've been speaking to so many people, so many scientists who also believe that, you know, milkweed should continue to be, um, because of the decline, we should be planting more of it. Right. So, I mean, I guess one thing I would say, and Anurag Agarwal told me this too, is that um, uh, by no means is is this paper the definitive end to this. Obviously, it's opening up kind of a huge can of worms if if we're not thinking of milkweed as the primary driver of what is causing monarch declines. Um, then there are other options, and a lot more science needs to be done to figure out what those uh, options are. Um, just getting back uh, quickly to the to the issue of of listing um, monarch butterflies uh, as threatened. Um, that's also kind of another can of worms, which is actually really really interesting. And I don't know if we want to spend too much time talking about that. Um, but we should say quickly here that, uh, and I think Dave would agree with me, monarch butterflies aren't in danger of going extinct. I think that's fair to say. It's more its more this eastern migration that's threatened. Yeah, so the monarch butterflies found all around the New World and, and elsewhere. But um, we have populations in Florida that are non-migratory, that are secure. The Californian population, so everything on the west side of the Rocky Mountains, it's fluctuating. It's not doing great, but it certainly is not declining to the point where we need to involve the Fish and Wildlife Service in national legislation. What, what is endangered is this huge migratory uh, segment, and we don't even know how genetically distinct it is, really, but it's a migratory segment. It's a, it's, what we are looking at is an endangered biological phenomenon, and it's exciting. Uh, it's uh, maybe the longest migration of an insect on the planet. And, and what that brings to Connecticut, that, that migration, are these beautiful butterflies. 
into our garden. And it, it puts caterpillars on plants where our children can see these, bring them in, grow them, find out about metamorphosis, and watch this incredible story of um, this butterfly coming out of what seems like a worm. You know, it's, it's a great, great thing to have monarchs in our backyards, to have them in fields. And so that whole thing um, is perhaps uh, endangered, and we have to think about this decline and, and what we can do. And part of this is really the forensics that Patrick's talking about. We need to sort of look at the pattern of decline and figure out why this is happening. And it turns out that it's more complicated than we thought three years ago. We're talking today about pollinators. I want to thank WNPR science reporter Patrick Scahill. His report on monarch butterflies can be heard next week on WNPR. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Sure. Coming up, we'll continue our conversation with Yukon entomologist David Wagner, and we'll be joined by WNPR's garden expert, Charlie Nardozzi. What plants are best for pollinators in your garden? Comment on our website, WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking pollinators today. Butterflies like monarchs are important to pollination. But how about a refresher on the whole process? Visits of insects to flowers are important both to insect and flower. The flower gives up its sweet nectar to the insect for food, while the insect carries away pollen useful in cross-pollination. We remember those films in school. David Wagner is in studio with me. He's an entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. So we know it's been a while since uh, many listeners have last studied flower reproduction and pollination. Uh, You're the entomologist. Tell us about the basics of what happens during this process of pollination. Well, flowers produce pollen, and uh, within that pollen is the sperm. And somehow you got to get that pollen to the female parts of the flower. And... Uh, some flowers are able to pollinate themselves and ba- basically transfer their pollen onto the female parts of the flower. But most plants are incom- incompatible with themselves, and they actually need a surrogate uh, to transfer or get that pollen to another individual. And that's how they outcross. And so that's how uh, the species evolves. And so they need these surrogate sex organs or these uh, flying animals that take their pollen from one individual to another. And uh, these can be butterflies, these can be bees, and after we go to bed, uh, it could be moths at night, right? So, and so they transfer that over uh, to the female parts, and then a uh, pollen tube grows down with the sperm, and the sperm fertilize the egg and produce the, the seeds and the fruits that we're so dependent on. So uh, we're going to be talking about moths a little bit later in the show. But um, so talk a little bit more about common uh, pollinating animals. So we had mentioned earlier in the show the ones that start with the letter B, right? Right. Birds, the bees, the butterflies, the bats. Um, Any unusual pollinating animals out there, maybe not in this region, that people don't think about? I think in South Africa there's some small mammals, and I recently found out that there's actually a gecko lizard, uh, so not the gecko lizard, but uh, there's a gecko that does some pollination. And so, uh, but beetles are very, very important, and we didn't mention those, but it is another bee. And what about ants? There is some ant pollination. So there's, there's probably, I don't know, 15 or 20 different lineages. Birds can be important pollinators, of course, right? So hummingbirds uh, we, we, um, are uh, amazing pollinators. And then uh, some birds in South Africa and elsewhere that can play an important role. 
And so uh, we focus on the on pollination because obviously there are crops that we depend on for food that without the pollinate the pollinating animals we wouldn't be able to have like the berries coming up in in June here in in Connecticut. So um, can you talk a little bit more about you know why we need to focus on making sure that pollinating animals have the, the food there for them? I think about one third of our crops, maybe a little north of that, are pollinated by insects. And that's a lot of what we need as a species to survive, right? So uh, they're incredibly important, especially when we get into tropical areas. But even in Connecticut, uh, we're absolutely dependent on pollinators. Two of the crops that come to mind, uh, certainly all the squash-related, but even more important in Connecticut, of course, are apples. And so our apples are all insect-pollinated, bee-pollinated, and we wouldn't have our apple festivals and what have you uh, without the pollinators. So there's Quite a bit of concern. Um, a very important national crop would be almonds. And so I think the U.S. economy figures about $3 billion a year in terms of its dependency on these insect pollinators. So what can you do to keep pollinators in your garden? Charlie Nardozzi now joins us by phone. He's a horticulturist and host of Connecticut Garden Journal. You can hear it Thursday afternoons at 3.04 on WNPR. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Lucy. So tell us about this uh, trend uh, these days where people are thinking about more about pollination when they plan their gardens. Yeah, there's a big trend to create more pollinator gardens. You know, it kind of started with the whole butterfly garden theme because people just love to watch butterflies flitting around the garden in their house. But then uh, folks have really kind of taken it a step further and thought more than, than just about butterflies, but all of the, the native bees and the bumblebees and, and all the other creatures, the hummingbirds that was just mentioned, um, that might be important for the health of a yard and the health of a garden. So there are all kinds of plants out there now and all kinds of different uh, plants you can put into your landscape that will attract them and support them so you can keep those populations healthy. So uh, our Where We Live producer, Tucker Ives, thought it would be fun if uh, I sent you some of my uh, garden pictures to, to let me know if I'm on the right track with uh, br- bringing in uh, pollinati- pollinators into my garden. So uh, tell us, what kind of plants should I be planting? Well, it's a nice yard, Liz. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you did a good job. <laughs> so uh, when, you're plant- when you're planting a pollinator garden, really you have to think of a number of different things. Of course, you want to start with the plants. And you want to have early, mid, and late season blooming plants uh, because, you know, we get a warm spell in April or so, those bees are going to start flying and they're looking for nectar sources and there may not be a lot out there. So it's important to have some flowers, some nectar sources for them early in the season. And then as we go through the warm, hot summers, sometimes dry summers, something that will sustain them. And then in the fall as well, something that will help them get all kind of bulked up for the winter so they can survive the winter. So that's one of the first things you want to look at is having a range of flowering plants. And it could be annuals. It could be perennials. It can even be trees and shrubs because a lot of people don't realize a lot of the native uh, trees like oaks and willows um, are really important for a lot of pollinating insects and butterflies. And they contain a lot of pollen there that these uh, insects can really use to kind of help them along. So it's the end of May. What should people be putting in their gardens now to have those uh, flowering uh, plants and bushes in the fall? Well, you start thinking about things that were blooming earlier, like you showed a picture of your house that has rhododendrons in full bloom. Really nice shrub to have in the landscape and a nice one to have because, of course, it blooms early in the season. Um, But any of those earlier blooming kind of flowers, uh, you can go to a garden center and pick up annuals like uh, salvias, for example, anise hyssops, and a really nice one that will grow well uh, and really attract a lot of uh, insects into your garden. 
know, generally when you're looking at pollinating insects, uh, they like a number of different kinds of flowers depending upon which one you're, you're thinking about. So you can get those daisy-shaped flowers like the black-eyed Susan. Those are really nice to have in there for a lot of the beneficial insects. You can get tube-shaped flowers that are great for the hummingbirds. Um, a lot of those would be, uh, would be a trumpet vine, which is a, can be a, a bit of an, an aggressive plant. Um, but you can get some salvia plants that might be a better example of that. Um, that would help with those. And then you can get the umbiliferous family. And those are really key because uh, they really host a lot of different pollinating insects, things like dill and fennel. Uh, and even in cilantro and, and Queen Anne's lace, to let those flowers grow up and actually flower, you'll see a whole host of pollinating insects on them. I want to take a call now from Dan, who's calling from Southern Connecticut State University. Hi, Dan. You're on Where We Live. Hi. Thanks so much. And thanks for having this program. Great, great topic. And what would you like to ask uh, or comment about? Well, I just wanted to share, I think, you know, such a, a pointed, important discussion to have about pollinators and you know the the things that we see in our neighborhoods. Uh, we see the gardens, as as the speakers have discussed, increase interest in, in butterfly gardens in the home landscapes, but also in the in the public garden world, right? And and public horticulture, we see this um, at universities, at public schools, daycares, uh, you know, formal public gardens that are that are more in the uh, space of you know museums, uh, as well as even corporate spaces. Um, and we're so happy here at Southern. We, we just had this spring a, a group of students put in uh, a new pollinator garden, uh, which is called the SCSU Science Garden, right outside of our new science building. Uh, they led the project. They planted it. And a nice mix, as Charlie was just talking about, you know, of, uh, you know, different types of flowers. In this one, we, we've used some uh, edible crops, some flowering crops, some natives for later season interest. Um, and, you know, just seeing the connectivity, right, for the pollinators to go from garden to garden uh, throughout the community. Well, thank you, Dan, so much for your call. I wanted to turn to uh, David Wagner, the entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology. He's in studio with me. Um, he's at the University of Connecticut. So, uh, David, if we can talk a little bit more about um, all the species of bees. We were talking about butterflies earlier, but obviously we depend on bees to, to pollinate. So um, what kind of bees and what kind of plants should we have to attract them here in our gardens? Well, there's actually a pretty rich fauna in Connecticut. I think there's uh, well north of 300 species of native bees that are out there pollinating our plants and doing most of the work for us. Um, just in terms of our crops, the honeybee is actually an introduced insect from Europe that uh, we manage, and it is our workhorse. And so it does much of the economical uh, pollination that we need. Uh, bumblebees, are in particular, do a lot in the gardens and... and uh, they are the workhorses, at least for our native plants. Uh, and so you can plant just about anything, but in general, uh, the, the bee flowers are going to be things that tend to be blue or orange, and then they have to have a landing platform for the bees. So a flower like a hummingbird flower, there's no place for the insect to land. That flower is built by natural selection and evolution just for the hummingbird, no landing platform. So you're looking for things, uh, Charlie mentioned the black-eyed Susan. That's a classic uh, bee flower, and the, the bee can sit right on it and look around, probe various florets, and get whatever it needs uh, from that flower. Um, he also mentioned uh, rhododendron and azalea, and those are big-time uh, bumblebee uh, or bee flowers in the sense that they provide lots of pollen. So bees don't only need nectar. We only mentioned nectar today, but it's actually... Um, they actually make the pollen grain into the food or the stash that they have inside and, and feed the, the young or the larvae. 
uh, while they're growing. I have a, a question for Charlie, um, a Facebook comment from Janie. She says, I've been reading about the best plants and shrubs to plant for a pollinator garden. However, there are warnings about avoiding plants treated with neonics, which are very harmful. How does one go about finding healthy plants for the garden? Well, I, it would start with going to your local nursery and, and looking for native plants and looking for people who are growing these plants <clears throat> Excuse me, themselves so that you can ask directly what they've used to actually agree grow these plants and so you'll have a better sense of what kind of chemicals what kind of inputs they use to get those plants growing and then based on that it, you know, I always steer people towards a lot of the heirlooms and the old-fashioned flowers you know there's been a big trend in the perennial annual flowering world to create these double flowers and these exotic looking echinacea is a great example you see all these different colors different shapes forms they don't even look like echinacea anymore and as confusing it is to us, it's confusing to the bees, too, because that, that, they don't really recognize that as a pollen source, or it's, it's hard for them to get into them. So I always try to steer people towards some of the old-fashioned heirloom varieties that have been adapted over a number of different years that the bees can have a real rich uh, nectar and pollen source from, and it'll be a reliable one for them. I think another thing that you can do is buy from local nurseries, because many of our local growers around here don't use many herbicides or pesticides, but if they do, they'll know the history and they can tell you when you buy the plants. When you go to Home Depot or a large corporation, these plants are grown uh, by the millions or at least the hundreds of thousands, and they often are treated. So if you're picking up your plants from a big distributor, you can bet that they have been treated with something. If you uh, buy locally, you can at least ask and find out the history of these uh, pesticides. And I think they're called neonicotinoids, and they're quite lethal to pollinators. Another question from Twitter this time. Uh, how can one get milkweed seeds? Well, you can get milkweed seeds and even plants, again, from those local nurseries. And I know in Connecticut there's listings of native plant nurseries. There are uh, nurseries in Connecticut that specialize in growing native plants and selling them. And milkweeds, of course, are essential for the monarch butterfly. And there's, but there's more than just the one kind of milkweed. There are a number of different species that can grow in Connecticut are native. Um, and if you can find these native plant nurseries, you can kind of snoop around and, and put them into your garden, work them into your different landscapes and meadows so they can have that uh, food supply for the monarchs. And Charlie, how hardy are, um, is milkweed? Because I had planted some, I think it's called the tuberosa variety, the orange kind, in the yep. fall, and they haven't, I don't think they made it through the winter, so I'm wondering, what did I do wrong? Well, they can be a little sensitive, especially the tuberosa, uh, the butterfly weed is what it's often called, uh, type of Asclepius. Uh, and they really like a kind of a well-drained soil, but they do need some moisture, too, and also not so an exposed area. So you might want to try it in a different spot of your yard or your garden, a place where it may have a little bit more, uh, better water drainage to it, and maybe a little protected spot. It is kind of a zone 5, zone 4, zone 5 plant, so if you're in a really cold little hollow area, um, it might be a little difficult during some uh, cold winter spells. Uh, David Wagner, our entomologist here, had mentioned um, avoiding buying plants from the big box stores. So I wanted to ask you, are there pollinating plants that are invasive that should be avoided? Well, certainly there are. You know, and the, the one that I mentioned on the Connecticut Garden Journal recently is the, the butterfly bush, and that's one that gets a lot of press. You know, and, and there are ways, if you really love a butterfly bush, to actually have them in your landscape um, and to maintain them so they don't get invasive, they don't spread seed all over the place. 
Um, that's the big problem with butterfly bushes is that they self so readily, and um, if you don't deadhead them religiously, they can be ending up all over. And it's a big problem uh, further south and further west. I think in Oregon they actually have it as an invasive species on their list. Um, so that's one of the types of plants you have to kind of watch out for. There are sterile seeded varieties of those, meaning that they won't uh, spread around, but that kind of brings up a whole other issue <laughs> of, um, you know, a lot of the birds will like to use those seeds as a food source, and if you have a sterile seeded variety, you're not going to have that. So uh, whichever way you turn, you have to kind of look at it from a couple different angles to make sure you're getting the right plant that's not going to become invasive but also can still be a good habitat support plant. I wanted to turn to our entomologist here, David Wagner. I wanted to ask you about colony collapse. I know that you're an expert um, in butterflies and moths, but tell us what's the latest when we hear about the honeybee population in, in this country and what people can do locally. Colony collapse disorder is a little bit out of my ballywick. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's funny, um, it's so very important, yet we still don't know the right answer. And it's kind of like monarch decline, where we, we found out that it's more complicated and perhaps it's death by a thousand cuts. It's uh, changing landscapes, it's climate change, uh, uh, viruses, uh, varroa mite. Mm -hmm. So we have these mites that are really challenging our colonies. But what's happened in Connecticut is we don't see much of that anymore. And it's going away if you have well-managed hives. And so if you have your hives that are uh, clean, and you're on top of things. We're not seeing so much of that anymore, um, particularly with uh, keeping the varroa mite out of our colonies. But we're, we're looking for hypotheses. But uh, right now, uh, some viruses are uh, hot on the radar screen in terms of uh, why uh, colony collapse disorder happens. And for those of you who don't know what it is, it's the bees leave, but they don't come back. And you just c uh, come back to your hive, and it, it's empty, and it's cost farmers millions of dollars in the United States. I want to take a call now from uh, Dr. Kim Stoner from the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. Uh, you're on where we live. Hi. I just wanted to let people know um, that the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station has a lot of research going on on pollinators, and there is a portal on the front page of the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station website with pollinator information, and um, it includes a lot of information about how to plant for pollinators, um, what kinds of plants to plant, how to establish native plants, um, particularly native plant meadows, and um, it also has some links to some research that I have done looking at pesticides in pollen and how how honeybees might be exposed to pesticides. All right, Dr. Stoner, thank you so much uh, for that resource. And we're almost out of time. Charlie, um, any parting words for our listeners who um, want to extend their garden into the fall and help the butterflies and the bees? Well, I think uh, we're talking about creating habitats and a few little quick notes is that it's not just about the flowers, too. Um, they need water sources, for example, so having bird baths around or, or little muddy areas around is good for the bees, good for the butterflies. Having places where they can hide, like evergreen shrubs around. I notice you have some of those in your landscape too, Lucy, so that's a good place for them uh, to hide there. And leaving certain areas kind of a little messy, you know, leaving some twigs and sticks and, and little areas. Um, these are all parts of that whole habitat system that needs to be created. It's not just about creating a beautiful butterfly garden, but you need to have all of it to, create, to support these insects.
Well, thank you so much. Charlie Nardozzi is a horticulturalist and host of Connecticut Garden Journal, heard Thursday afternoons at 3.04 on WNPR. Thanks for joining us today. It's been great to be here. And a quick note, the Connecticut Beekeeper Association is celebrating its 125th anniversary this year. More information at ctbees.org. This is where we live. where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about pollinators. In studio with me is David Wagner, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. So um, I promised David that we weren't just going to focus on butterflies. And I know that you're a lepidopterist, so that's an expert on butterflies and moths. And let's talk about moths and their role in pollination. Well, we don't get to see much of it because it happens after we're in bed. Um, But there are a number of plants that are pollinated by moths. We have these giant sphinx moths or hawk moths. You may have seen them with enormous tongues. So if you've ever seen a white flower with a a long throat where the nectar is, that would be a moth-pollinated flower. And some of the orchids can sometimes hide their nectar up to 11 inches away in the flower. So uh, there's got to be a moth somewhere on the planet uh, with a tongue at least 11 inches long. (laughs) And so a very famous story. Yeah, Darwin uh, was shown this orchid. Uh, the comet orchid from Madagascar, and it had this tremendous nectar spur up to 12, even 14 inches long. And at that point, there was no moth in the world in any collection uh, that had a tongue that, that with that long. And he predicted that at some point in the future, there would have to be a moth found in the jungles of Madagascar with a tongue at least 11 to 12 inches long. And he was right. It, it took many decades for someone to find the moth, but they did. But in any case, uh, these moth these moth flowers uh, tend to be white. But something that's really special about them in terms of uh, human existence is uh, they tend to be fragrant. So if you're a bee flower, you can just be blue or orange. If you want to attract hummingbirds, you should be a red flower. But if you want to attract moths, what color works at night? And about the only color that makes any sense at all are white flowers. But even color doesn't help that much. And so moth-pollinated flowers actually have fragrances. And some of these fragrances, I think, have absolutely uh, changed how we date and our courtship and all of that in the sense that uh, these fragrances we've co-opted and put into our cosmetics. We've taken these fragrances and put them into our perfumes. Mm -hmm. And we like things like boutonnieres with gardenia that make our dates smell better, right? But Uh, The most famous of all of these, these moth-pollinated flowers, would be something like jasmine. And jasmine has um, methyltransinamate in it. And this is is jasmine. This is the queen of the cosmetics industry. We we put jasmine in just about every perfume on the planet, uh, at least as one of the the base substances. We may not use much of it, uh, but it's something that globally people find attractive to smell. And uh, perhaps uh, we enjoy our dates a little more sometimes when they're wearing perfume or they smell good and they smell um, uh, perhaps more fragrant because of this interaction between insect and plant, this interaction between flower and moth. And some of these really wonderful scents that we have, narcissus, gardenia, uh, jasmine, they're all moth 
pollinated plants. Now, what about autumn clematis? It almost looks like jasmine, but it blooms in uh, late August, early September, little white flowers with beautiful smell. I mean, would that be something the moths are going to? Absolutely. Uh, Bees don't use fragrance to find the flower. If there's a fragrance, it's a moth-pollinated plant, particularly if it's white. So you've got the, you just nailed the syndrome right there. There you go. <laughs> so you've answered your own question, actually. And so you told me that moths are nocturnal. So how much time do you spend um, during the twilight hours looking for moths? Well, people aren't going to like this, uh, but I'm going to tell them anyway. And that is that actually butterflies are moths. Butterflies are only moths that fly around in the daytime. So on the great tree of life, which includes 250,000 species of animals, there's this one little branch on this tree of life that you call butterflies, and those are moths that fly around in the daytime. Uh, but in order to see 95% of what, we, of what I study, I've got to you know, wait till after dinner and go out and uh, collect uh, mostly through the night, and it's it's really I actually enjoy it. Maybe not so much in a, a wild tropical rainforest. I like uh, to not do that so much. But uh, uh, around here, uh, you can walk in the woods and see wonderful things after dark and uh, rich moth diversity. I want to take a call from Kathleen from Cheshire. Kathleen, you're on where we live. Hi, thank you so much for doing this program. I really appreciate hearing all of this excellent information. My question is. I had a wonderful, just a very tall, very abundantly flowering empire butterfly bush in my garden for years. It just kept growing, and I'd prune it back, and it would grow. And then last year, it died. It just collapsed and died. And I went to our nursery in Cheshire and purchased a a replacement, and that did not make it through the winter. I spoke to the owner, and it was excellent with plants, and he said his are dying as well. We don't know why. So I'm hoping maybe your guests can shed some light on what to do about that, um, what, what we need to do to be able to prevent this again. Well, Charlie Nardozzi, our gardening expert, is no longer with us, but we could send that uh, question to him via email. David, do you have any ideas? I don't have a clue. <laughs> um, it, it sounds like it could be a new pathogen, but I really don't know. And so I wanted to talk, uh, before we run out of time, there's actually a really interesting event happening um, next weekend, right? The BioBlitz? Right, June 3rd and June 4th, but the public piece is June 4th. And it's the Connecticut State BioBlitz. This is going to be the largest one in the country. It's going to be a spectacular event at Two Rivers Magnet School in East Hartford. And we're also pairing up with the Connecticut Science Center, and they're uh, providing half-price admission for the first 500 families that show up. But it's going to be maybe... Uh, 180 scientists in this race, this sporting event, to see how many species they can discover in 24 hours. And so the Wikipedia record for the most species that's ever been found in 24 hours, 2,519. We're hoping to beat that. It'll be, it'll be difficult. We'll need some good weather. We'll need some luck. But we have, uh, again, a crack team of uh, taxonomists, systematists, and counters from all over the tree uh, of, of life. And we have a wonderful exhibits area. We have this caterpillar lab coming down from Massachusetts, and it's a totally fully interactive exhibit for kids. There'll be um, hundreds of caterpillars. They get to pick them up. Uh, they can uh, touch them. They can watch them molt. Uh, they can look at them under the microscope. So, But we'll have the largest insect zoo that's ever been assembled in the Northeast, uh, spectacular insect collections, uh, raptor exhibits. There'll be live birds, there'll be live reptiles, and there'll be walks, there'll be talks, and it should be spectacular. 
And James Prosek is on the phone. He's an artist, writer, and naturalist, uh, joining us also to talk about the 2016 Connecticut State Bio Blitz. Hi, James. Hi, how are you? I'm well, and so this sounds like a great event for kids, um, but I, it sounds like a, adults like David may be there <laughs> excited to, to beat this record. Well, David is a big kid, as you can tell, <laughs> listening to his passion and wonder for these um, flying insects. Um, yeah, it should be amazing, and, and I don't know what aspect of it you'd like to hear about, but Dave kind of mentioned it. the event is all about trying to identify or discover even potentially new undescribed species as many as possible in a 24-hour period, and it kind of originated a little bit um, through my friendship with Dave and, and my interest in how we name and order the natural world, which I'm writing a book about, and um, it was largely funded by uh, something called the Richard Garmony Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. And, and uh, Richard was a friend of mine who loved nature, so I think he'd be happy about this. And I think, uh, you know, hopefully it'll inspire a lot of kids to make deeper inquiries into the natural world. And the specific location for the bio blitz, I mean, that, that um, takes that into consideration of, of trying to find as many of these critters as possible in East Hartford? Not really. I think there are going to be over 200 bio blitzes nationwide. So this is the 100th year centenary birthday of the National Park Service. So the National Park Service and National Geographic have asked for a bio blitz in every state in the United States. So we got this wonderful award from the Richard uh, P. Garmony Fund, and so we decided to grow this thing. We wanted to be the biggest in Connecticut. Then we decided we wanted to be the biggest in the Northeast. Then we decided we wanted to be the biggest in the nation. And so... Um, all these other bioblitzes, or most of them are going on in national parks, maybe pristine areas. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to bring awareness about biodiversity right to the city, right to East Hartford, right to Hartford. And so we're hoping, and we're challenging ourselves, but we want to make sure that people who live in Hartford can find out about the wonderful plant and animal life that lives within five miles of, of the city. So we've made a five-mile uh, radius around the Two Rivers Magnet Middle School, and we're going to see what we can do in the water, in the sky, in the soil, and everywhere else. What about the unique characteristics of the Connecticut River Valley? Well, the Connecticut River Valley, um, with the Connecticut River, it's the only undammed river um, in all of New England. And so uh, it has a fairly high biodiversity. So we're right on the banks of the Connecticut River. So we're going to, the uh, Connecticut DEP is going to be showing very, very big. They're uh, another partner in this event, and they'll have uh, quite a few boats the University of Connecticut will have a lot of its scientists, but especially its fisheries group uh, from uh, natural resources and also uh, the Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. So we have, we're really, really strong in, in fish. The Connecticut River is going to play a, a, a very important role. We actually have bass fishermen that are going to be running uh, our scientists up and down the river. We've got uh, the exploration vessel from Goodwin College. So uh, this is going to be really exciting. And it's 24 hours. We're, we're doing stuff. We don't sleep at this event. So uh, we'll... <laughs> We're doing dissections and microscope work all night long. And, David, you're literally jumping out of your seat. You're so excited. <laughs> well, <I'm not> so. <laughs> and, James, what about you? We have a couple more minutes left. Um, what are you so excited about about this event? Well, I've never really attended a, a, a full-out bio blitz, and this one, as Dave describes, should be kind of a humdinger. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's... Uh, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm I'm interested in how and why we name and order the natural world. So, the idea of counting species diversity is something that's really interesting to me. Like, what does it mean to apply 
language to nature and and how do how do how do we do that and you know where do we divide uh, where do we draw lines between creatures and nature to even say that this this creature is different than that creature so those are some of the questions i'm interested in but i'm also just interested to to watch these different scientists and the the passions they've developed for segments of the tree of life like dave said some some there'll be parasite biologists parasitologists there'll be you know, microbiologists who study stuff we can't even see, and how do you count that kind of diversity? I'm, I'm curious to watch that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to going out on the boat with the DEP to electroshock. You know, see what kind of fish are in the river. I, I particularly am fond of fish as a fisherman, <laughs> and you know, go out at night looking, uh, listening for owls, or you know, just just the whole enterprise of humans and nature, and, and trying to make sense of nature is something I'm interested in. So this is like a very concentrated version of this, almost 200 scientists from different parts of the country. And Well, we're definitely um, excited to, about the BioBlitz now. Thank you so much, James Prosek, artist, writer, and naturalist, for joining Where We Live. Also to David Wagner, we're out of time, entomologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for your time, David. Well, thank you, Lucy. This is really fun. I enjoyed myself. Our show is produced by Tucker Ives and Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.